Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. Welcome, everybody, to the Nurse Leader Network. I cannot believe that we are already wrapping up August. Today is the last day of August, and this year feels like it has flown by. So I want to just stop and say thank you to all the listeners. We are so glad to have you. Today, you're in for a different kind of interview. So we've talked a lot on the Nurse Leader Network about setting boundaries and creating healthy habits and things that you can do to really take care of yourself. But one thing we haven't dug into are metrics. And so today's guest is going to talk to us about how to utilize predictive analytics to improve your health care outcome. So welcome to the show, Dr. John Nelson from Healthcare Environment. Thank you, Chris. Very good to be here. Okay. So John, talk to me about your trajectory. How did you become a nurse? How did you end up writing this powerhouse book that really can help nurse leaders transform what's going on inside of their organizations? Sure. I started out in the ministry. I was a youth pastor in my early 20s. I have a two-year degree in theology. And uh, after doing that for a little bit, I decided I wanted to do something a little more technical, but that had something to do with the ministry still. So I got into, decided to go into nursing because I felt that nursing would be a ministry, but more technical. And so after uh, being a bedside nurse, I had got my two-year degree. And then while I was practicing at the bedside in med surge for three years, I was working on my four-year degree. And then once I transferred to ICU and worked there for eight years, during that time, I got my master's and my PhD. I got my master's in statistics and my PhD in nursing. But the reason that I um, even got into statistics, because when I was in high school, I hated mathematics. I was terrible <laughs> at it. And I, um, for business math, that's just basically the adding, subtracting, div- um, dividing, and multiplying. And I got a D, mostly because I talked too much. <laughs> but the uh, interesting thing about that is I did that because I knew I was going to the ministry. And I thought, well, I don't need math to counsel people. And so Working as a nurse, the thing that was it became very apparent to me was we don't use, or at least what the, the place I was working at, we didn't really use data to make decisions. We just change stuff. So if the framework of care that we were using um, didn't seem to be working, we would just change it. So um, at this particular hospital, it was a large urban hospital here in Minneapolis, and I was uh, practicing primary nursing. And primary nursing is where you take care of the same person from admission to discharge. Um, you're responsible for their plan of care, for the collaborating, et cetera. And I love primary nursing. It was one of the things that I enjoyed the most. I would see the progress of that patient. I would go in day after day, and I would know exactly what they liked or didn't like. I would know their response to the medications. So it wasn't only the relationship, which, which was the most enjoyable, but it was clinically, I thought it was very effective because I learn to understand that patient. So if they got really sick and got intubated or whatever, I still knew their preferences. I knew their families. I knew what they liked and didn't like. So I thought it was just a very effective method of care. And the organization decided to go to a team nursing approach, which was it's much more task-oriented, not relationally oriented. It wouldn't have had the same format of um, assignments, patient assignments. And so I had a really good relationship with my um, unit manager. 
and um, the team on the unit. And when they said they were going to change to team nursing, I asked if, you know, what the data was that they were in. I still had just my four-year, I think, at the time. Yeah, I had my four-year degree. So I wasn't data-driven, but I still wanted to know what this was premised on. Well, there was no data. So before they changed, I said, if it's okay with you, I would really like to dive into the literature to find out what the evidence is for primary nursing versus team nursing. And they thought that was a good idea. So I I dove into the literature and what I found was there wasn't really any data on methods of models of care delivery for nursing, the um, functional nursing, the team nursing, the um, name nurse, the primary nurse, all the different types. So anyway, um, I called the people that were cited for primary nursing the most. And so I called Marie Manthe, Luther Crispin, Joyce Clifford, Kathy Horvath, and um, Karen Zander. They were all the names that were cited all the time. Well, anyway, by this time, I had gotten on a committee for primary nursing, and we decided to keep primary nursing, which was a good thing, but I wanted to figure out how to measure this. And so um, before I got too deep into school, because I wanted to see if I should take a master's degree in data management or something, I took a statistics course. It was just a 5,000 level, so it was a master's degree course. And Dr. Susan Kistler was her name, and she's still out there doing her stat stuff. I've seen her um, on LinkedIn. But anyway, she taught this master's class, and she was brilliant. And she gave all of us in the master's class, first day, a bag of M&Ms. It was peanut M&Ms. And I already. <laughs> <laughs> so she, So we all opened up our bags, and we laid out our M&Ms, and we put them in lines, and, you know, we sort of, what was our most common, which was the mode, uh, then we sort of lined them up so we could have sort of a distribution. And they're like, what's, you know, what's your outlier? What do you only have one of, you know, so we were talking about the terms of statistics. And again, I still did not like math, but a light bulb went off as she, we were talking about this because we were tra- learning an ANOVA to, to compare groups. And I said, this might sound absolutely ridiculous that I asked this question, but I had no idea that and ANOVA was such a thing. So I said to Dr. Kistler, I said, so if we can compare M&Ms, does that mean I can compare groups of nurses or models of care? And she said, well, of course, it's, it's just a variable. And I thought to myself, well, for goodness sakes, why are we not doing that more already? Why don't I have lots of ANOVAs about primary nursing versus team nursing versus functional nursing, et cetera? So anyway, I was I, I fell in love with mathematics on this day. <clears throat> and so I got, uh, I believe I got an A in that class. Uh, statistics is very hard. I had a really good it GPA, is. but statistics uh, was the only class out of all of my classes that I got, um, I got two Bs and they were in my PhD level class. It was really tough. But anyway, um, I'm good at statistics, but um, it doesn't come easy to this brain because I think more about stories about relationships, et cetera. But the good thing is, is now that I love math, I and people tell me stories, I see math as people are tell me, telling me stories. So that's how I got into statistics. And then I got into my, I got my master's in statistics through the School of Nursing. They had a special program then that you could design your own. And then I got my PhD in nursing. And all of the master's and PhD, it was all about primary nursing and job satisfaction. So um, that's how I got into uh, 
into statistics. That was 21 years ago when I started presenting my job satisfaction dissertation, um, people started hiring me. And then I decided I couldn't do both bedside nursing and consulting on job satisfaction. So I, I left the bedside 21 years ago and started my company, Healthcare Environment. Wow. You're like the poster child for the frontline nurse that we all want. <laughs> the nurse that questions, right? Like, why, am I, why, why, why is this happening? I need to understand where's the data. Uh, I love that you took that, you know, the curiosity and really like, you know, went a step forward and, you know, really embedded your life around that. I think it's uh, something beautiful. And I teach statistics and nursing research. And so I am buying my students M&Ms. I don't know how I'm going to get them then because we are still on Zoom. Uh, Maybe I'll have to like, I don't know, you know, drop ship them some kind of M&Ms, but I love that. Mm -hmm. And so for those of you listening, that's actually a really good and yummy idea. Um, And so, uh, I mean, tell me about the time from when you like made that decision around, okay, I have to leave the bedside. I mean, that was a time where there wasn't this huge, like, you know, group of nurses that are going out and becoming entrepreneurs. I mean, you, oh, right. you were like a pioneer. What was that experience like? Um, very scary to put it in a word. Um, I I had no idea how to start my own business. I was a staff nurse. I was a minister before that. I worked in restaurant for a while. Um, so my dad said to me something one day. He said to me, John, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. <laughs> so oh. Basically, he told me just to just do it, dude. And so anyway, um, I went and got some books on LLCs and S-Corps and C-Corps and all that those things. And I called this lawyer who is still my lawyer, business lawyer today. I have a great, great relationship with him. Uh, but no, it was it was really tough. And the thing is, is that nurses are always so kind. So we feel bad that we have to charge for things. <laughs> and so I, I remember the first time I charged, it was like an $8,000 contract. And it I probably should have charged more like thirty five or 40000 because it was, wow. a, it was a large research study of the whole hospital. But anyway, I said to the, the chief nurse, she said, how much is it? And I, I wanted to sound confident. So I said, it's 8000 and she said, all right, write the contract up. And I thought to myself. <laughs> You're like, I mean, 80,000. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I slipped. <laughs> I thought, well, that was easy. So anyway, but I remember I hadn't quite left the bedside yet because I, I, I needed to, you know, I couldn't quit my day job while I was getting my business going. Uh, but I went to work and I just, I thought I was a millionaire the way that uh, you, you know, I was talking. But anyway, so. That was really interesting. And and nurses do need to figure out how to get some business, how to market. And, and I've, I mean, I've been in business for 21 years now, uh, almost lost it a couple of times. 2008 was really tough. Um, I had some business colleagues that coached me through how to make it through the that, um, that downturn. Um, but it's been a really good experience. I've worked in 46 countries total as a consultant. I've wow. about uh, well over 400 studies that I've led or participated in or consulted on. Um, so I've done a a lot, a lot of work all around the world. So it's it's been really fun. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that first gig. Did you like call up the hospital operator and were like, I'd like to speak or how did that happen? I want to hear the story. Well, it was actually with, I was a subcontractor for another company. So it was actually went really quite well. 
so because they uh, it was creative healthcare management i don't know if i can say that on your podcast or not but it was another company and they did relationship-based cares and they had primary nursing but they didn't have a researcher to study uh, primary nursing and the different things that go with that. So they called me and asked me if I would be a subcontractor on their contract. And it was Marie Matthews company actually. So I had developed a a good relationship with her and I'm good friends with her still today. She's actually on one of my podcasts. Um, uh, So that, that was kind of fun. Uh, but anyway, so I, I went in and um, I told them how much uh, it would be. And then I, pre- I met the um, chief nurse officer and uh, that, that went very well. So I did a, I've done a lot of work with creative healthcare. I've done a lot of um, student uh, mentoring. Um, I've actually start, also started an international collaboration. Uh, it's had different uh, versions. Sigma Theta Tau actually adopted it for about six, five or six years, but then it uh, we went our separate ways. We had just different visions, and now it's called Caring Science International Collaborative, CSIC. Uh, but we continue to do international research, and in the new book, uh, we have uh, that this uh, using predictive analytics to improve healthcare outcomes. Wiley published it just came out July 27th of 2021. But in that book, we have nine of the countries that I've done research in and um, chapter six uh, and chapter 16, both are from the eight country study that I did in 2019. We studied a little over 2000 nurses and we looked at how caring for self, caring of manager, clarity and job satisfaction all relate together using structural equation modeling. Wow. See, so it's not just that we're talking about it on the Nurse Leader Network podcast, like there's some research behind this. Uh, Okay. So tell me about your favorite study. What, you know, what was the one that you're looking back on and you're like, I could have done that one a bunch of times. Like the, you know, to walk me through, like, what was the variables that you looked at? What were the outcomes that you found? How did things change for the nurses? Well, I, I, I'll give you a little, it's in this book um, because it's, it's about caring. After about five years of doing my research and consulting, I was working out east at a large hospital, and we were studying job satisfaction, and they were actually working with Gene Watson, Dr. Gene Watson at the time. And so um, Dr. Watson had just updated or revised her theory to what's called the Keratos processes. So it's 10 behaviors that... if enacted to self or others, that um, she proposes that there's a cascade of healing that occurs internally, and healing ensues. And it's not only internally, it's, um, she's very existential as well. But anyway, um, they asked me, um, John, um, Dr. Watson has a newer version of her uh, caring process, uh, the Keratos processes, and, and there's no measure that assesses those 10 concepts. So could you help us develop a measure to assess that and how it relates to job satisfaction? Because I was doing job satisfaction there. And um, I said, sure. And I didn't know Dr. Watson at the time. I'd seen her, of course, in many videos throughout my school years. But anyway, uh, she sent an email uh, in response and said, yeah, let's, um, let's create a measure. So since then, I've, uh, that's been one of my main things is caring. Uh, measuring caring. But in this, and I've studied it um, globally, uh, Dr. Watson's uh, theory works 
really almost in every single country I have worked in, except Scotland, Western Scotland, it didn't work. Neither Swanson nor Watson worked. So we used um, a, a caring philosophy from the National Health Service and that worked really well. But anyway, so we have tested <clears throat> tested it globally, but in our structural equation model, uh, we tested 2,046 nurses and um, we had Israel and Turkey and China and Scotland and US and Brazil and Canada and Slovenia. So we had those eight countries. And um, I think we had like three, 31 or 3,200 nurses, but there was 2,046 that answered every single question. But what was interesting, Chris, is we found that out of the 10 Caritas processes, there were five um, behaviors that were in both caring for self and caring of the manager. But we also found, and I don't ask me what they were specifically, I can't remember, you'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> But anyway, in but I also found that there was a, a specific Caritas process consistent with caring for self, and I believe that was the work environment, uh, the, the, or the, my physical environment. If I tend to my physical environment, I think that was true for the caring for self, but not caring of the manager. But the uh, the caring of the manager um, also had a unique um, Caritas process. So it tells me that uh, that I think there's rules of caring that are true, no matter if it's caring for self, caring for coworkers, caring for man caring of manager, etc. But I think that caring isn't just caring. Caring is relationally, I mean, there's a center of self, there's a center of me and my patient, there's a center of me and my coworker. And I think that we need to pay attention to what behaviors are specific to each of those caring relationships. So that I find very fascinating. But if I can say one more thing that I think is very interesting, is that okay? Oh, of course. The I'm, other thing that I'm I like find, in a trance right now, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, well, first of all, you're taking me back to my PhD and the Caritas process. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of like really fascinated around, you know, yes, we, we care for ourselves differently than we care for our children, than we care for. So why wouldn't there be differences in the way we care for ourselves versus care for the manager versus care for the patient, right? Like, so, um, and we don't talk about that in school. We talk about one thing and that's caring for the patient. We don't really highlight any other caring, which we know now that when we sacrifice our own self-care or caring for others, that we just can't show up as our best selves for our patients. So it definitely impacts Absolutely. our patient outcomes. No, absolutely. And that's what um, Dr. Watson asserts, that we have to care for self before we care for others. So that got me thinking that maybe there are some different dimensions. But the thing that we found that interesting, um, Dr. Watson and I edited another book that's called Measuring Caring. That was by Springer. And um, we had done so many research studies in caring that we couldn't keep up with all of the studies. We had about 45 at the time that we wrote wow. that together in 2011. And we weren't doing all the studies. We were doing some of them, but we weren't doing all of them. We were just sort of a, a cooperative, if you will. And that was within that Sigma Theta TAW. It was called the Caring, Caring International Research Collaborative CERC, we called it. But anyway, so w once we hit, I think it was actually about 75 studies. But what I said, to, I said to Gene, you know, Gene, I can't keep up. Uh, with all this publishing, I said, let's just write a book. So I said, <laughs> let's just send out an email to everyone that's doing a study in our little co cooperative. And um, let's see who wants to put 
something in the book. So uh, we had 45 studies that ended up going up in the book and I th- in the book. And I think it was nine countries similar to nine countries in this book, uh, different countries, of course. Uh, but anyway, um, so it's a compilation of all of that. Now, what's interesting about this book is this is a real a theme about just predictive analytics. But what I wanted to say in the Measuring Caring book and all of that research previous to this predictive analytic book is we found that nurses, that the relationship between job satisfaction and the patient's report of caring of that nurse, because we do have a a survey that assesses the patient's report of caring, um, we found that sometimes the relationship was positive, that as the nurse was more caring as perceived by the patient, the nurse was more satisfied with their job. But sometimes we found it opposite, that the more the uh, patient reported they were caring, the more they dislike their job. And so what over time, what we've learned is we did a time series study where we followed these nurses as they went through relationship-based care. So they were trained how to care. I mean, we think caring is just something that is innate, mm-hmm. but if it's going to be clinically effective, it requires training. So that's why I think the Caritas processes are important because you learn about the work environment, about the education, about the basic needs, about the spirituality, about the religious practices. So the 10 different behaviors, you learn how to support depending on the clinical need with that patient. And so what we found was nurses evolved. And we found that, but nurses, they can figure out anything. Give them a roll of tape and they can do anything. (laughs) They'll tape up the roof of the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That's silk tape, I tell you. But anyway, um, so what what we found was, is nurses who were clear, they understood what it took to care and to provide caring and to usher in healing. Sometimes they were the most angry nurses because they didn't have the social and technical resources to do their job, but they they didn't have the teamwork, they didn't have the equipment, they didn't have the meds on time, all those different things, but they learned the shortcuts, they learned the little, create the little stash of equipment, you know, they get figure out who can be a, a team player, so they make it work, right? And so um, what we found was, though, is even though they made it work, they were still not happy. But what we found was, is once they learned like in frameworks of care, whether it be caring behaviors assurance system or some patient-centered care, but once they learn how to work the system and develop good teams through their unit practice council, et cetera, once they have the framework to make care occur, they evolve with the environment and they become happy because they have develop systems that work. And that's what was, was so, that's what I talk about. And that's one of the things I talk about in this book is that in my predictive analytics, it's all about telling the story because nobody understands the outcome like the frontline workers. Nobody understands job satisfaction or workload or um, um, caughty or clapsy or patient falls. Nobody understands it more than those that are in the clinical setting. And so when I go in an organization and I just have them talk about their outcome, whether it's job satisfaction or workload or falls or whatever, as while they think that they're having a complaining session, I'm actually doing work (laughs) because I'm listening to all the variables that they're talking about. I call this structural storytelling. And as they're providing the story, I'm figuring out how to structure this into a measurement model. Because what we, what I find, Chris, is the 
most important and most and the most missing variable in predictive analytics and predictive Predictive analytics, it's basically you uh, start with correlations and you use regressions and you see how do the how does the dependent variable like falls, how is it predicted by all these things that were told in the story, right? And so then you, uh, you know, run your regression and then you say these are all your variables that are predicting these falls or these infections, etc. But unless you have the contextualized measure that includes the patient variables, the system variables, and the employee variables, like job satisfaction, like caring for self, you're going to have a misspecified model because anybody that has been in a hospital, they don't come around and come out of the hospital and say, man, that ventilator I was on, did that ever harm? That was a good <laughs> ventilator. What they say quality is, ever. exactly, they say, <laughs> Boy, that nurse, when 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 she was taking me off or when he was taking me off that ventilator, that nurse was kind. They held my hand. It was scary. They coached me. They informed me what my, you know, my peak pressures were, how I was doing. When I was tiring out, they would let me rest. It was that nurse that was coaching that patient that they brag about. The vent is in, I mean, you can have yeah. the, the state-of-the-art vent and still die. Yeah. But if you have a nurse that can work with you to understand your weaknesses and your nutrition and your family and your coping and your stress and all those different things, that's the big predictor. But we don't measure that. We don't what it's what I call the profile of caring. We need to measure their profile. How do they care for themselves? That's important. I mean, especially in this pandemic, my gosh, we just burned out a whole bunch of nurses and lost a whole bunch of nurses and doctors too. And so we need to understand what is that profile of caring look like that's impacting my outcomes. And that's what I talk about and what I've been working on for 21 years is how does caring and the experience of, it's really the quadruple aim, how does the experience of the clinical worker impact outcomes? Wow. Like it going. (laughs) I know, I love it. I mean, okay, so I, you know, in my role, in my former role, I, you know, remember being at a conference one time, or it was maybe like a summit. And um, there was this really famous researcher there. And it was a room full of chief nursing officers. And she said that she had done her research on other chief nursing officers and asked them, what are your strategic priorities? And so, you know, that she did some research on it. And she found that like, you know, it was finance and patient experience and quality and safety and all of these things that you would anticipate. And then she said when she got to like number 13 or 14, it was then research and evidence-based practice. And she said, you know, if you all had woken up and smelled the coffee, you would have realized that had you implemented this research and evidence-based practice, all of those strategic priorities would have taken care of themselves. But your eye is on the wrong thing. It's not, you're, you're, you know, you're basically like ass backwards, I mean, pretty much. And so, you know, you've just shared so many different gems around different variables that would impact outcomes, right? So in your book, you talk about falls and you talk about different safety outcomes. You talk about HCAPs, which is a huge thing that we're looking at, heart failure. Um, I mean, workflow, CLABSI, that you just talk about all of these things that are on the minds of the leaders that are listening today. Where do they get started? So, I mean, do, how do we know when we need to pull in an expert like you or our nursing researchers to begin doing that work versus looking at evidence-based practice implementation? Like, how do we get started and how do we know where to start? 
Yeah, well, anybody can tell a story. So I think anybody can implement the, it's, I call it Nelson's methodology for healthcare analytics. And it's 16 steps, it's five phases, and the team is the team is really all important. You need to have the clinical folks that tell the story, and you need to have the analyst like me, and most big hospitals have an analyst. They just don't know how to necessarily um, structure a system so it brings them from story to um, proactive management of outcomes because we have to stop we're managing outcomes in the rearview mirror. We've got to get like the rest of the world and start looking forward mm-hmm. and using pro, uh, predictive analytics to really forecast where the risk is. Um, but to understand that it's going to take the team, it's going to take your clinical people, it's going to take your informaticists, it's going to take your uh, computer folks. So once you get the entire team together, the, my book is intended to be in a how-to. And we actually, it's written for the second year college. We really worked hard. Uh, I probably read it, uh, I would say, 30, 40 times cover to cover. uh, And we really worked to take anything that created a pause because I hired a non-analyst. And um, so if there was something she didn't understand, she would say, "Okay, I don't get this. Do I have to know this? And I'm like, well, let's talk it through. So we would talk it through. And she said, okay, that's too technical. Let's put it in the appendix. <laughs> okay. So what we what we did is we tried to make it so it was an easy read for anyone that was even in the first or second year in college. But yet we provided enough in the appendix that the informaticists and the um, programmers would have some meat to be able to, to, to work with. But that's the first thing is understand that you're, it's going to take a team. And the second thing is it's not going to be easy. I have, I would say 95% of the people that contact me want to plug and play. Yeah, right. Flip the switch for me, please. <laughs> like that, that? Like, I said, they they call and they're like, can you flip the switch that we stop having false? Absolutely. But I don't so want to invest anything. I don't want to give any money or any time. Can you just Well, the thing this? is, is, it is, <laughs> is anybody can do that, but it takes developing the model that's contextualized and specified for that organization because I often find that people use algorithms from hospitals in the lit- from the literature but it's derived from hospitals that are completely different uh, I mean the rehab should not be using a um, algorithm from an acute care hospital and vice versa mm-hmm. um, so you, you need to understand it, there's no organization like your organization and because there is no organization like your organization you need a measure that no one else has and it might be similar there, there's going to be some overlap but you need to t- start with the story um, so that's and and where I start when I go into organization if they do see I recognize I need to spend some time developing this, you know, the, the measurement models and, and um, doing the interfacing and developing the automated models so that I have real-time reports, et cetera. So once you get someone that does that, and I those, boy, that's a playground when I find um, executives that are like that, <laughs> is then, uh, then they, then they it, it's really interesting because then they almost come to me like a sick patient <laughs> and say, help. What do I do? And I'm like, well, tell me your what's your worst symptom? What's the thing that is uh, panicking you? And they'll say, well, it's either falls or age caps or clab C. Those are the big ones. Um, and so I'll say, okay, well, tell me, tell me, um, you know, why the patients fall. And so then they'll just start talking about why they why they start falling. I said, there we we've got our first story. So let's let's start there and let's build. Let's you might be measuring some of your story already, but let's evaluate how much of your story you're 
measuring and what you aren't measuring will add to. So we we start with what they have. Um, so it can you can start pretty quickly. You're looking at the retrospective data, but you want to be able to develop a model that is going to be robust for that context, so that when you uh, discover the predictors and you action plan, that that algorithm that you've developed on the model one is no longer defunct. Because if you've solved it, well, of course, they're not going to predict those outcomes anymore. Yeah. So you want a methodology that's dynamic, so that once you're explained variance falls, that your, your uh, structural model, I call it, you have your structural model, which is all the variables, you have your measurement model, which are the ones you say are important, and you have your uh, over aggregated model, which is your sort of your communication model. These are the big things we're studying. But you need to have a way that can automatically bring in all that structural model It'll evaluate it again, and then it'll spit out again. These are the new variables in this context so that the machine starts to work with you to inform the dynamics of your environment. But you have to program all that. So for example, on the one that you did with Falls, you got the team together, you had the analysts, you had the clinical folks, you got your first story. What was like the next step? So walk me through that case scenario. Sure. Well, let me, let me, let me start at the very beginning when they asked me about this. <laughs> and this is, this is very common because it, it, it makes sense to me and I don't blame them. And I, if my, my, the, the um, humor I find it isn't meant to be belittling them. It's just as an analyst, I just think, oh, this is how everybody thinks. And this is so not the way that you should be thinking if you want to solve it. But I had the um, uh, fantastic chief nurse come up to me and say, tell me why my patients fall. And I said, well, why don't they fall? So what do you mean? And I said, well, if you want to understand why they fall, you have to understand why they don't fall. And she's like, Oh, really? And I said, well, sure. I said, because you're measuring these fall risks and it's all in the people that are falling. Well, why aren't the other people not falling? So I said, so what we're going to do is I said, we're going to use that same measure that you're using right now. And every fall you have, you get a non-fall and then you collect that same data. And so we did that. And it was so fascinating because it revealed in that same sample, why the patients were falling. And what was interesting to me is when I presented the data to their fall committee, and they were they were so much fun. <laughs> I, I, they were. Nurses they, always are. <laughs> what's that? I said nurses always are yeah, really fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially if they have intention, you know, yeah. that's, that's the best. And passion. Well, anyway, this was a very passionate uh, organization, and their falls were four falls per 1,000 patient days, Thanks. which is super high. And because the, the benchmark is, uh, I think, one or less than one. And so anyway, they were, I mean, it felt like their falls were all over. There was one unit that had 19 falls in one month. I mean, it was, oh, no. yeah, it was just terrible. And so anyway, they were feeling so bad because they really cared for the patient. They were doing relationship-based care, uh, you know, so they were trying to do the best for the patients. But anyway, so when I came in and presented the data, it was so interesting watching all their light bulbs go off. Because I showed, I said, well, first of all, you have three risk assessments. You have one that is four, and because, and then you then you score them, you know, one, two, three, or four. And if you're a three or four, you're you're at risk. So then you put them, yes, I'm at risk. I'm a three or four, or no, I'm a one or a two. So basically, everyone's a three or four. So everyone's at risk. So then no one's at risk. So if we so uh. that 
that risk score does you no know, no good because you don't pay attention to it. I said, but let's look at your emergency department risk score. I said, that is really informative. And I said, because your patients start to fall when they hit 13. And in, in between 13, it was a 27 point risk. So that takes, a, takes, takes some time to fill out, but it was very informative. And the patients were starting to fall between 13 and 17 is when the patients, that was sort of the peak between in that 2700 scale. And what was fascinating to me is they, they thought, oh, that is really interesting. And I said, well, and another thing, I said, this wasn't statistically significant. I said, but I want you to get give you an idea to start thinking about fall frequency isn't enough. You have to understand the yeah. clinical story behind the fall, not just the fall frequency, risk or no risk. Then you're not going to be taking any action. I said, you have four beds in some of your rooms. Bed one is closest to the bathroom. Bed two is next closest, then three, and then four. And I said, the data showed that bed one is the riskiest of falling. Bed they two, out of the restroom? Is, yes. Bed two is the second less risky. And then three and four, once you get in three or four, there's no risk. And I said, and the thing is, is that they think they're close enough to that bathroom to make it because no one's asking, answering the call light. Yeah. But they discover halfway there that they were too weak because they're sick. Yeah. And what was fascinating to me is watching as I was explaining these variables, they were like getting on the edge of their seats. Thinking, <laughs> I know how to stop falls. Oh, and what was fascinating wow. is they went from four per 1,000 to zero. They had no falls that next month oh, wow. because they knew what to do. And what was interesting, it was that risk score that was so informative. Because they took the risk score and they put it at the end of the bed. And once they, the nurse saw that it was getting to a 11 or a 12, that was a warning to them that, okay, they're about to fall. So now we have to educate. So when they were at that point, they would sit down with the patient and they would say, okay, we need to have a talk about your risk for falls. And these are the things that we've identified. So it was specified. But what was fascinating is the the staff did not realize that the patients were feeling belittled by being told to get back to bed all the time. They Mm -hmm. felt like little kids and they didn't know that they had these risks. So it was interesting how it enhanced the relationship because they became partners in preventing the falls. So that kind of stuff I think is, is really fun. So the falls was really, uh, was really a fun one starting with why do my patients fall? Well, why don't they fall? I love that question, right? Why don't your patients get clabsy? Why don't they get cotty? Um, yeah. yeah. Oh my so that's God. That's just a, a research question. But the other thing, if I could say one more thing about those falls, is what was interesting is we were able to explain 35% of the variants of falls. So why patients fall, we were able to explain this. And they brought it down to zero. So then um, that was great. So then we did another study because then the falls crept up to 0.6 per 1000 patient days. So they were much better at it. But what was interesting is that, and then we found other variables, but as I was thinking about it, not model two, but as I was thinking about model one, and I thought, I wonder if I could explain more of the variance. And that means it's sort of, for those who don't know what variance is, is a variance is sort of like um, the percentage of the pie that you understand the ingredients for. So if I say I can explain 35% of the variance of falls, it's sort of like, I know for a cherry pie, I know what 35% of the ingredients of this cherry pie is, but I don't know 65%. So uh, that just is sort of a layman's way to explain what variance means. I would not want to eat that pie if you only knew 35% of them. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's one of the problems in America. We are eating those kinds of right? pies. We don't know what's in it. <laughs> but anyway, so I thought to myself because I noticed in the literature in the first data set that nine of nine mental health patients fell. And uh, that they uh, they I was it they got an injury, but it, anyway, it was it was a really high. And oh, I noticed nine of nine of nine of them were on psychotropic drugs. That's what it was. Okay. So I thought, now isn't that interesting that all nine of them? So I said to the mental health manager, I said, so now tell me why is it that everybody's falling with on psychotropic drugs? She said, well, they're so. Um, she used a, a disrespectful term, <laughs> but anyway, they were real dizzy. We'll say, we'll use that okay. word. And um, I thought, well, I wonder if there was nine of them. I wonder if psychotropic drugs on the other units, if the, it's being used. So it was interesting. So what I did is instead of polycopharmacy, which was one of the predictors, I changed it to, I looked at all, there was like 14 different meds that were real common. So, I, and I looked at psychotropic drugs and I was able to increase my explained variance, I think to 61%. Wow. 35% because uh, the psychotropic drugs just in themselves, I it's in the book. I think they explained 32% of the falls but a hospital wide. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting, so that tells you how important model specification is. Yeah. If you are if you aren't measuring the right variables, you won't explain as much of the cause. So what I had suggested once I looked at it in a secondary way, I said you need to put a big flag on psychotropic drugs because that's a big cause of your falls. But what was interesting about that is it made the the data make even more sense because one of the other predictors that wasn't in the first model was education. And mm -hmm. we found that that was a really important predictor. I think that explained like 14% of the variance of falls. But anyway, I thought that was really interesting. Wow. And as an analyst, I'm constantly thinking about my data and about the stories, um, those kinds of things. I, um, oh my gosh, this has just been really helpful. So through this process, they can understand what these variables are. And then do they, do you work with them or do they have another team that then sets up, you know, some process improvement around whatever variables you discovered? Well, I usually work with them, but what I'm, I'm, I am developing some classes uh, on my 16 steps. I have like, I think it's 9.5 continuing education credits, but it's just a series of videos that people can watch and they use the book. Uh, because I would like to be able to, for anybody, because anybody can do this, um, as long as they have an analyst or a programmer. And for those smaller organizations that don't have one, um, I'd be happy to, you know, service that. But what I'm hoping will happen is that the teams will learn how to utilize storytelling to develop good models and then work with their programmers to take that math because it's just A plus B plus C equals X, X being your outcome and A, B, and C are your variables from your mm -hmm. story. You give that to your programmer, your programmer programs that, and then you're able to monitor those variables as it relates to your outcome. The thing that I would love to see people do is, and I think Cleveland Clinics uh, is doing this and John Hopkins, and I think Rush University has started to do this too, uh, but I'm seeing more and more of it, is where they're, they're actually starting to move to 
proactive management where you use your trajectories and you use um, methods like Aroma. Um, it's a real long term and I can't remember. It's um, I won't even try. But anyway, um, it's where you use your trajectories and you forecast risk based on your history. So you can look at what's my risk going to be in two weeks, two months, three months. You can set the timeline um, differently um, yeah. based on your math. But if you look at other or other industries like trucking and mining, um, they do this. They, they, they monitor all the variables from their story that they've identified that impact productivity. And uh, then they manage that proactively. So before the outcome occurs. So do I have this staff with the caring profile that is high enough to create safety. So we need to be able to utilize our math. It's uh, There's something in the mathematic equations that's called a coefficient. <clears throat> Coefficients are super informative because they tell you this is the unit that is risky or this is the unit that's safe. This is the profile demographic that is risky. This is the demographic profile that, you know, piece that's safe. So you want to be able to understand and forecast, like when you're staffing, am I staffing with the adequate profile of caring so that you can actually run simulations of your schedule before they all come on for your unit to say, no, this is a, this is a good mix of different profiles. I mean, that's a ways off, but that's where I would love for us to go. Wow. Could you imagine that? Like that, that's what I'm basing my staffing on is on excellent teams um, that can care for patients. Oh my gosh, that'd be Fantastic. No, and that you could test you could test the model for safety before you do that. When I was at a, a mathematical conference, mathematic conference, and it was truckers and miners, they had just fantastic math, and they were telling me how they would uh, improve their outcomes uh, proactively. And when they asked me, "Well, John, how do you proactively manage <laughs> outcomes in healthcare?" <laughs> I was You're the only like, person uh... <laughs> I said, "Well, when someone falls, we try not to do it again." And they said. Oh my gosh. They, they thought he must have misunderstood us. <laughs> so they asked me the question again. And they're like, no, how do you proactively manage your outcomes? I'm like, well, that's really how we do it. If someone falls, we try not to do that again. We put slippers case on studies. Them. <laughs> <laughs> or stars on the stars on the oh, no. Ay, ay, ay. Well, we've got a ways to go. Um, and this is another great example of why it's really important for nursing not to just focus on our own silo, right? A lot of times we think we have all of the answers when in reality, there's these other disciplines and uh, professions that really have figured it out in ways that we can uh, incorporate it. So, I mean, if truckers can do it, we can do it as well. It just has to be our focus. Yeah. It was the uh, analyst from DHL and oh my gosh, his math was amazing. I was like so inspired by this trucker who was talking about how they save millions of dollars just by a little adjustment in their model. And that's where I really learned about specified, really learned about specified models and about proactive management of outcomes was by truckers and miners. And they love to share. So um, nurses need to start going to trucking uh, math conferences. There you go. I can't stand math. I teach finance and budget, but I still can't stand it. But you have convinced me through this podcast that I may start to like math, especially when there's M&Ms involved. Um, <laughs> I love it, Chris. That's really a good one. Oh my gosh. Okay. So our time's coming to an end. You mentioned you have a podcast. Tell us about your podcast. 
Well, it's podcast. It, if you go to my uh, website, healthcareenvironment.com, you can find it, but it's pod, podcast.healthcareenvironment.com. Okay, awesome. And what kind of stuff do you talk about on your podcast? Well, we we talk about things like we talk about in the book. Uh, like, for example, this um, last two weeks, we had a two-part on pain management. And it was a doctor of nursing practice who had called me and said, I have a theory on comfort that uh, that uh, is beyond pain. It includes pain, but things like shortness of breath and cramping and those kinds of things that are over uh, overlooked in pain would be addressed in comfort. So she, she and I went through nine different models. Dr. Tara Nichols is her name. And uh, I interviewed her twice on her uh, model of comfort. And we talked about how she and I, me as a PhD and her as a DNP, a doctor of nursing practice, we worked together to develop her um, model of comfort. Um, this week, we're doing a leadership, you leadership. Um, they have a um, human-centered leadership program. So I interview them on why it's important to have a leadership training that is relationship-centered uh, and not just some of the more fundamental uh, industry-wide mm-hmm. models. Um, then we talk about, I interview the people that like the falls. I interview the guy that did the falls study that oversaw the falls. I interview the people that did the CLAPSI study. So I try to keep it all about the mathematics and how we improve the outcomes using predictive analytics. But it's not just the predictive analytics. It's some of the concepts that um, are important uh, for us to examine uh, within healthcare. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm so excited. I'm going to be tuning in like right after this recording. Uh, if to, folks want to find out more about um, you, where can they find you? Well, you can uh, go to my website and you can look at under the about us and you'll be able to uh, contact me directly. Um, you, I, also at john at healthcareenvironment.com. The other thing I, I would encourage you to is when you go to my website, just click on the icon. That will give you an idea of sort of where I want to go in the patterns of caring, because I think those who are caring have a different pattern of life. And I think in the hospitals, eventually, I think we can design hospitals that have the pattern of caring. But anyway, I'll let you read the um, why we designed the um, logo as we did. All right. And, and remind me one more time, what's your website? Healthcare environment, one word, dot com. Awesome. This has been fantastic. I've had such a good time. Thank you, John. Me too, Chris. Thanks so much. I enjoyed this. 